You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue in our series, The Rumors of God, a series where our hope is that we'll be able to close the gap between what you believe about God in your head and what you actually experience in a real and personable way. Um, we're under the impression as pastors that in the religious South, there are many people who know rumors about God's love, rumors about His grace, rumors about His power, but for many people, those rumors are still rumors. And our hope in this series, The Rumors of God, is that they will go from being rumors to being reality in your life. If you're a guest with us this morning, I especially want to welcome you. My name's Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, on behalf of the members, we want to welcome you. Our hope is that you will go from feeling like guests to feeling like family just as soon as possible. And one of the greatest ways you can get connected in our uh, church is by being involved in a missional community. Um, a missional community is just a family of missionary servants seeking to make disciples who make disciples. And um, if you're like, I, I don't want to get involved in a missional community yet, not ready to jump all in like that, well, let me encourage you. Come see me at the welcome table after this is over. I'm going to have a card. You can fill out some information about yourself if you want. And that'll just be a way for us having a record of your attendance and a way of us to contact you on your terms and to serve you in a way that you would want us to serve you or get you with the information that you might need about our church. So, again, uh, welcome to the guests. Welcome to everyone. Revelation chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We're going to start in verse 2, and we'll read through verse 7. This is Jesus writing to the church of Ephesus, and it says the following, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and that you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Who who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for another opportunity that we have today to wake up and to come here in a building where we can worship you together. I pray for every man, woman, and child that is in this building today that they will encounter you in a real and personal way. And we know that that cannot happen by playing well enough or preaching well enough. Holy Spirit, we're coming to you right now because we really do need you. We need you to work right now to take these words and to take them from just being words that are spoken or words on a page to being truths that are explosively alive in our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Hey, let me see a show of hands. How many of you in here had children that were in the Tech Fun Run? Did anybody else have children in Tech Fun Run? Okay, several of you. Um, my daughter, to my surprise, wanted to be in the Fun Run uh, this past week. There's my daughter. That's Nora Kate. I was surprised that she wanted to be in it because Nora doesn't run. And so, but her friends were going to be in it. So she's like, I'm going to do it. So I went and I watched her run in this little race where they basically just run around their little uh, building. And, and, and she didn't, uh, she did well, but she didn't win. And so she's kind of a competitive little girl. And so um, she, as soon as the race is over, she goes to the trophy table. 
And then she comes right back to me, and the first thing out of her mouth is, Daddy, I didn't win. And, of course, I spanked her, you know, for not a winning. <laughs> Just kidding. Lighten up, everybody. It's a joke. Um, I got down on the knee, of course. And I was like, babe, it doesn't matter. Like, you did awesome. I'm so proud of you. Way to go. Like, it was great watching you run. You gave it your best. And she was still clearly disappointed that she didn't win. And so eventually I was like, look, baby, if you really want to win, if you want to get a trophy next time, like, you're going to have to actually start running uh, outside of these little events. So if you want to start running with Daddy, I'll, I'll run with you. And I didn't think she'd take me up on it. But a couple of days later, she came up to me, and she's like, Daddy, can we go running tonight? And I was like, ah, oh, absolutely. And so, like, I put on my running shoes. And she put on her running shoes, and we just began to take off around our neighborhood. And actually, uh, she started really well. She was excited about running. She was passionate about running. She's just laughing, and she's talking my head off, and everything is going well. But about, I don't know, the quarter mile range from around there, I noticed that her pace began to slow. And then she began to complain. I'm tired. My feet hurt. I can't do this. I want to go home, right? And so we began to turn around and like, okay, we'll head back home. And so, you know, we got about a quarter mile to go back. And so we're running, but eventually her run stops and and she just begins to walk. And she literally is just doing this, you know, like right here. And I'm like, you know, trying to grab her hand and pull her along. And, and eventually, I kid you not, I'm not exaggerating. I wish I was. She went from, from walking to just throwing herself into the yard of some random person's house <laughs> and begin to just cry and say, I can't go anymore. I don't have my feet on. And she just begins to cry. And like cars are driving by. It's pitch black. And here's this little girl in a yard crying and this man standing over saying, get up, you know, get up. And so uh, fortunately, like no one calls the cops, right? Um, eventually, I cannot get her to get up. She's just crying. So I literally had to scoop her up out of someone's yard and carry her like an extra 150 yards home. I'm just carrying her. And uh, as I'm carrying her, the thought crosses my mind that what's happening with my daughter spiritually is probably happening in the lives of some of you who are here today. And, And what I mean by that is there are some of you who, when you started following Jesus, assuming you've started following him, you were passionate about Jesus. You started really well. You were excited you were hungry. You wanted to know more about the things of God. I and mean, when you woke up in the morning, you woke up early just to read the Bible, right? Whenever it came to prayer, you considered prayer to be something of a privilege. I mean, you would share your faith. You would share your finances all for the sake of making Jesus known. But somewhere along the way, your passion has begun to fade. The excitement that you once had is no longer there. And maybe even right now, you sit here, you're tired You're somewhat disenchanted with the Christian faith. You're growing weary and you're possibly even thinking if something doesn't give, if somebody does not somehow come and pick me up, I'm not sure I'm even going to be able to continue moving forward. I mean, you come here maybe week after week and you hope to find life and yet you leave here week after week disappointed. Maybe you continue to try to do your devotions, but your devotions feel more like a duty then they feel like a delight. Like you share your faith, maybe if it so happens to come up, but even while you're sharing your faith, you're wondering, do I even believe what I'm saying? Uh, Author Donald Miller says this in a season where his passion had faded. He says, I feel like I've become an infomercial for God and I don't even use the product. Maybe that's the way some of you feel this morning. 
For some of you, if I asked you, hey, are you as passionate about Jesus right now? Or are you actually more passionate about Jesus now than you were a year ago? Some of you would say, actually, not even close. To be honest, I'm less passionate now than I've ever been. And so maybe you sit here and, and each week you hear these sermons and they just it's just empty. It falls to the floor. You feel like you're praying. Your prayers are hitting the ceiling. I mean, you're just, you're, you're just trying to push through and you're wondering this morning, like, can I ever regain that passion? Is it possible to truly, in a lukewarm culture like this, to remain passionate about Jesus, excited about following after him? And if I can get that passion, I mean, how in the world do I sustain that passion? These are all great questions, and fortunately, I believe the answer is found in Revelation chapter 2. So if you look back with me, Revelation chapter 2, verse 2, again, Jesus is writing to the church of Ephesus, and he starts by giving them a word of encouragement. He says, I know your works. I know that you have, that you have toiled. I understand, he says, that you are a people of patient endurance, I want you to think about patient endurance for a second. The, the book of Revelation, it's actually written 40 years after the Apostle Paul founded this church. And during the time this, this letter is written to Ephesus, the church is under an intense amount of persecution. If you're like, how intense? Well, basically, there is this Roman emperor by the name of Nero. There he is, good-looking guy. He doesn't look that bad, right? But he was actually very bad. Nero absolutely hated Christians. He hated them so much that he found it to be a hobby to do things like crucify Christians upside down. He would throw them to wild beasts, and most notoriously, he would dip Christians in tar, impale them with a stake, and then set them on fire so they could illuminate his nighttime orgies. Right? Not a great guy. But this is what he's doing in mass amounts to the Christian people. And yet what Jesus says, you know what I love about you, Ephesus? In the midst of all of this persecution and opposition, you haven't given up. You're still going after me. Even though you know that literally you might die because of your faith, you're still continuing to press forward. And I love that about you guys. He goes on from there and he says, you know what? I, I love that you are patiently enduring persecution. He says, I also love how you cannot bear with those who are evil. In other words, he says, I love that you are pursuing holiness. And this is credible to me, uh, incredible when you think about the fact that this city, the city of Ephesus, is an incredibly wicked city. This is a city that literally was dominated by the worship of the sex goddess Artemis. And what you need to know about Artemis, there she is. What you need to know about Artemis is this, is, is the way that kind of the worship originated is there was a meteor that fell from like the heavens, from the sky, there's this meteor that fell, and it had a bunch of bumps on it, and I'm not making this up. Somebody said that looks like a bunch of breast. Probably some dude that said that, right? And he's like, so I bet it's from the sex goddess Artemis, we should worship her. And so they built this temple that became a seven wonders of the world right here around her, and literally what would happen is if you wanted to commune with Artemis, what would happen, I'm, I'm not making this up, the way the religion worked is they would send these prostitutes into the temple to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice to Artemis. They would then ask for spirits to indwell within them. And then if you wanted to commune with Artemis, you would go and have sex with the prostitutes. That's how it worked, right? And, and so incredibly wicked city. And, and here's the thing. Like, this wasn't just, wasn't just like a minority of people who were worshiping Artemis. I mean, literally, the whole city was defined by her presence. Literally, the entire industry, economy, community, family, calendar, social, and religious landscape fell under her shadow. 
And so the people of Ephesus that are making up the church are people who have been converted out of this religion. As you can imagine, this is a church filled with people with an incredibly broken sexual history. These are people who have been set free from that, though, who have been set free from bondage and shame. And what Jesus says, despite the fact that you are still surrounded by all of these pagans, you're you're continuing to pursue holiness. You're remaining pure. How incredible is that? Jesus says, I love that about you all. He then goes on, and the next thing he says is he says, I love not only that you're enduring persecution, that you're pursuing holiness, but he says in verse 2, I love that you're committed to sound doctrine. That's what he means when he says that you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. This is interesting because in Acts 20, whenever Paul left the Ephesian church, he said to the elders, hey, beware, there's going to be people who's going to try to come in among your church, and they're going to be like wolves. They're going to try to devour you. They're going to try to spread false doctrine and false teaching, so guard against that. And now here they are 40 years later, and they're taking Paul's word seriously. They're guarding against false doctrine. They're still committed to the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Lastly, he says in verse 3, another word of encouragement. He says he has for Ephesus. He says, I know you're enduring patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake, for you have not grown weary. Translation, you guys are a hardworking group of people. You are remaining diligent. You have a great work ethic. You're not resting on your past successes saying, let's think about all this great stuff we've done. Now we can hit cruise control. He's saying, no, you're continuing to push through. You're continuing to show yourself approved. So let's just think about this for one second. Jesus says about this church, you are persevering in the midst of persecution. You're pursuing holiness. You're holding to sound doctrine. And you're working hard. I mean, this sounds like a church that we would all want to be a part of. Sounds like a great church. And as we read this, we might look and say, I mean, what else could Jesus want from the church of Ephesus? Well, we see. Again, if you look in verse 2, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And you found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for one another's sake, and you have not grown weary. But, verse 4, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Jesus says, hey, Ephesus, you've done a lot of great stuff. Ephesus, I I appreciate all of that stuff about you, but I have a problem. And here's the problem, church. What I, the, the problem I have with you is you have forgotten that what I care about the most is not you doing stuff for me, it's you being with me. You, you've forgotten that what I want the most is not your works. What I want the most is your heart. I want a relationship with you. And yet in the busyness of life, in the midst of all of the great stuff you've done, you, he says, have stopped loving me. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. This is a problem. This is a huge problem because think about this. Razorback fans, for example, if you go to a Razorback game, say especially at Little Rock or in Fayetteville, what do you expect to find? A bunch of people who love the Razorbacks. Right? Am I right? that are passionate about the Razorbacks. Likewise, when you gather with the church, you should expect to see people who are crazy in love with Jesus. 
of people who are passionate about Jesus. And yet, that is no longer the case here with Ephesus. Jesus says, you're doing lots of great stuff, but you've forgotten what I care about the most. is not you doing stuff for me, but you actually enjoying being with me. For some of you here today, you know truths about God in your head. But those truths are no longer explosively alive in your heart. For some of you here, you are going through the motions. Your passion is slowly fading or maybe even has faded. And you're wondering, what in the world do I need to do about it? What do I need to regain the passion and sustain the passion? What do I need? It's a good question to ask. Maybe for some of you, you've believed the lie that what you need more than anything is a super pastor. You believe the lie. There he is, super pastor. You believe the lie that if you're going to be able to sustain a passionate relationship with Jesus, what you need is to sit under a pastor who can preach amazingly well. And because he's so smart, it only takes him about seven hours a week to work on a sermon, which means he has tons of time to counsel you whenever you want, to visit you when you're sick, to answer your phone calls whenever you call or your text or whatever. What you need is a pastor who's going to, on top of all that, equip leaders in the church, church, cast a compelling vision for the future. And then in all of his extra free time, he's going to love his wife and kids really, really well so he doesn't disqualify himself for ministry. If I could have that guy, then I know I'd be passionate about Jesus. The problem is that guy doesn't exist. He doesn't. And even if he did, he still would not be enough to sustain your love and passion for Jesus. You know how I know that? Who pastored the church of Ephesus? The Apostle Paul. Anybody know who the Apostle Paul is? He wrote half your New Testament. He's the single greatest missionary to ever live apart from Jesus. Anybody know who followed Paul and pastored the church of Ephesus after Paul left? Timothy, Paul's protege, also has a couple books of the Bible named after him. Anybody know who followed Timothy? John, who wrote the Gospel of John. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. Literally, John's nickname was the disciple whom Jesus loved. If the disciple whom Jesus loved can't sustain your love for God, and Timothy and Paul, I promise you there is no pastor on the earth right now who can sustain your passion for God. Can't happen. It cannot happen. Maybe for some of you, you're like, well, I don't think I need just a better pastor. I think what I need is more miracles, right? If I could just see more signs and wonders, like then I know, man, I would be so passionate about God. But again, that's just not the case. I mean, do you remember the people of Israel in the Old Testament? When they were in slavery and they cried out to God, God sent all these plagues on Egypt so they would free Israel from slavery. And then they come to the sea and they're sandwiched between the sea and the Egyptian army. And what does God do? He splits the sea in half so they can cross through on dry land. And then the Egyptian army follows behind him and God causes the sea to crush the army so that Israel can come out free. They then come to the hills of the promised land that God had said is flowing with milk and honey, is life and life abundantly, but what happens? They begin to complain. They begin to say, you know what, it was better back in Egypt because there we had soup with leeks and onions in it. We need to go back for that soup, right? Like, like the miracles were not enough to sustain their love and passion for God. And it happens right here with Ephesus too, by the way. The Apostle Paul, it's amazing to think about it. The Apostle Paul 
had so much power. God had given him so much incredible power to where the Bible says in Acts 19 that literally if his handkerchief touched you, it would heal you. Can you just imagine that? If you went up to the Apostle Paul, if he was your pastor, and you're like, Paul, man, my sister's sick. She's in the hospital. Can you come and pray over that she'll be healed? He said, you know what? I don't have a lot of time right now. Um, Here's my hanky. Just take that. Can you imagine? And just being like, seriously? And so then you're like going, and you're like, hey, I know this seems weird, but Paul says if I put this on you, it's going to heal you. And you're like, whoa, it worked. This is like a super hanky, right? I mean, it's like how in the world does this happen? Like I just laid a hanky on you, and you were healed. This is the kind of power... The church of Ephesus saw constantly saw miracles. They saw signs and wonders, and yet it was not enough to sustain their love for God. Others say, well, what we need, Jared, really is just more of a cultural impact. We need to get prayer back in school. If we could get prayer back in school, if we could overturn Roe versus Wade, if we could get the right politician in office to take our country back for God, then I would remain passionate. Then I would be more in love with God. But yet again, we see in the Bible that's just not the case. In Acts 19, Paul preached the gospel so powerfully that literally the city began to be converted and the people who were worshiping Artemis began to take all their shrines of her and all their books and burn them. In fact, it it created such a, a, a cultural impact in their city that businesses who were making a profit off Artemis and all the shrines and books, they began to go under. Their business was no longer being sustained. So then as a result, they created this riot in the city because the gospel was going forward so powerfully. Can you imagine that? I mean, I've been preaching the gospel for 11 years. Not one time have I preached a sermon so powerfully that there was a riot that broke out in the city. Wouldn't it be awesome? I've talked about this before, just to walk out one time and me preach such a great sermon that literally someone like flips a car over and sets it on fire. It'd be awesome. As long as the person had insurance. It was... Paul preaches the gospel, the city begins to be converted, and then it even moves out beyond the whole region. I mean, this is great cultural impact that they got to experience. And yet it still was not enough to keep them in love with Jesus. So the question is then, if if godly leadership isn't enough, if signs and wonders and miracles is not enough, if impacting our culture, living missionally is not enough, then what do we need to keep us from forsaking our first love? Well, Jesus answers us. Verse 4 again, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Now that's an interesting phrase. The first sermon I ever preached 12 years ago. Was it 12 years ago? I don't remember. Somewhere around there. First sermon I ever preached, I preached this text. And I preached it like every other preacher I've ever heard preach it. Usually whenever someone comes to this line, remember from where you have fallen. Here's what they mean by that, what they say Jesus means by that. Remember how much you used to love God and go back to loving him that much again. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. And I'll show you why. If you flip over to Ephesians chapter 2 quickly with me. Paul here is writing a letter to the church of Ephesus. And here's what he says to this church. Ephesians 2 verse 4, we'll put it on the screen for you. If you don't want to turn to it, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here's the amazing thing about what Paul just said here. Listen to this. 
Paul said whenever you were born, each of us were born dead in our sins. We were born separated from God. We were born broken beyond our ability to repair ourselves. And yet God in his grace, rather than looking at you and saying, hey, you know, fix yourself, make yourself right. God says, I know that you cannot do this. And so what he did is Paul says he lavished his grace upon you. He said, whenever you will trust in Jesus Christ, when you will trust, he lived a perfect life that you can never live, and that he came and died a death you deserve to die for your sins and rose from the dead. If you will trust in him, you will be saved. You will be given a new identity. You will be given a new hope. He says, you'll be given a new eternity. He says in here that you will literally be given a seat with Jesus in the heavenly places. Do you have any idea what that means? That means that when you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you become a co-heir with Jesus. What's true of him is now true of you. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. What does that mean? He goes on to say in verse 21 that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin so that you may become the righteousness of God. That's called the great exchange That means that literally at the cross, Jesus took your death so that you can get his life. He took your sin so that you can get his righteousness. And now what that means is when you are before God, God is perfectly pleased with you. No matter who you are or what you have done today, because Jesus is, because God is pleased with Jesus and his righteousness covers you, that means that God right now is pleased with you. Hebrews 10.14 says this, that by a single offering God has perfected for all time those who are being saved. Think about that right now. No matter what you did last night, you look perfect right now in the eyes of God. He's not going to love you any more or any less than He loves you right now. In fact, He's never loved anybody more than He loves you. Because he loves you with the same love that he loves his son Jesus. This is incredible. The fact that Jesus Christ came and at the cross he was treated the way we deserve to be treated for our sin. So that when we trust in him, we can be treated for all eternity the way he deserves to be treated. Guys, this is way better than you're acting like it is right now. It's way better. Some of you need to smile. I believe this stuff. I think some of you are going to be shocked when you get to heaven that God has emotion. He does. The Bible says in Zephaniah, God rejoices over you with singing. This is incredible news. That God loves you right now because of Christ with a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever type love. The reason that's so important for you to get is, listen... This is the key to remaining in love with God. The key to remaining in love with God is not remembering how much you used to love Him. But rather the key to remaining in love with God is remembering how much God is in love with you. That's the key. It's by remembering that God is who He says He is. And He's done everything that He says He's done for you in Christ. It's by remembering, man, that I was lost I was without hope and now I'm found. I was dead and now I've been made alive. I was an enemy of God, but now literally I am a beloved child of His. This is the key to sustaining your passion in a lukewarm culture. This is the key to continuing to love God. Jonathan Edwards 
once said that if you set a man on fire, people will come from miles to watch him burn. And I can say that when I first started following Jesus, I think this was totally true of me. People would tell me all the time, Jared, your passion is so contagious. I mean, as a result, college students just started coming. Adam, you remember those days. People, college students just started coming around me, started wanting to hear more about Jesus. I began to talk more about Jesus. As a result, people were being saved. Lives were being changed. And a church just said, hey, you know what? We'll just keep paying you to do what you've been doing. How crazy is that? I didn't, even, I didn't apply for a job. They said, hey, we're just going to start paying you money to do what you've been doing. So quit your job, and we'll pay you that. It's like, awesome. I get money to talk about Jesus. That's incredible. But you know what began to happen when I got that job? I got a title. You know what happens when you get a title? You get expectations. And as a result, what happened when I got expectations? Because I believe that what mattered most is pleasing the church who had hired me, and I didn't want to be fired by them. Doing stuff for God began to replace being with God. And as a result, I learned the hard way, as Pastor John Tyson says, a relationship begins to die when the things the relationship produces take place of why the relationship was founded in the first place. I want you to think about that again. A relationship begins to die when the things the relationship produces takes place of why the relationship was founded in the first place. Like, what does he mean by that? Let me try to help you out. How many of you in here are married? Raise your hands. How many of you are married happily? Man, this is your chance. Good job, Kyle. All right. When I first met my wife, it was at the buckle. I've told this story many times. I'm going to keep telling it many times. Just deal with it. And so I met her, and immediately I knew I wanted to marry her. So I began to pursue her. You know the story. She said no until when? She saw me with my shirt off on the beach. True story. <laughs> True story. Some of you say, yeah, she started dating you out of sympathy after that. It's like, no, I think it was out of like just pure ecstasy, you know? And so, saw me with my shirt off. She decided she wanted to date me. And when we started dating, you know what? Like, we were on the phone till like 3 or 4 in the morning. Anybody remember those days when you're dating? Right? I mean, we're talking to wee hours in the morning. We always want to be together. Eventually, though, we get married. And what happens when you get married? Right? I got a big boy job, right? Started working full-time. She started working full-time. We started having kids. We now have a minivan, by the way. Has nothing to do with the sermon, but we got a minivan this past week. My wife reminds me on the way... <laughs> Thank you, Scott. My wife reminds me on the way over here. She said, do you remember? She starts laughing. She said, do you remember when we started dating? You were in a rock band, and now you're driving a minivan. And I was like, why did you say that? Like, that doesn't bless me at all. And so, um, anyways, we started having kids, right? Responsibilities started happening. And you know, when life gets busy, what happens? We're just coming and going. Before I know it, I'm just like, hey, I know you. I remember you, right? Some of you have been there. And as a result, what happens? Your marriage begins to suffer. Because think about this. The stuff that your relationship produces starts taking place of why the relationship was founded in the first place. For some of you, that's happening right now. Not only in your marriage, it's happening in your relationship with Jesus. When you started, man, doing ministry, when you started being involved in the church, when you started getting involved in a missional community or going forward and trying to bless the people, it was strictly out of just an overflow of the fact that Jesus Christ had saved you. But now those things have begun to take place of Jesus himself. 
And so you find your passion fading away. The good news is this morning, no matter how far you feel like you are from God, God says you want to get your passion back. Listen, it doesn't happen by having to work harder to try to prove your love to God. He says simply remember. Remember the love that I have for you. And then he does say to repent. And repent, is, don't think of that like in a negative sense. Like this is not like Jesus trying to beat you up. It's like a jealous, uh, basically a husband for his bride. He's saying you're chasing after other lovers that will not satisfy you. Turn from believing those things will satisfy you and turn to trust in me. Repent. And then as a result, he says, yes, do the works you did at first, but not out of an attempt to earn my love, but because you know you already are loved. This is Paul's prayer for the Ephesians church. It's why in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, if you look with me, I'll put it on the screen. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. For this reason, I'm praying to the Father for you guys, for the church of Ephesus. Why am I praying? Why? He said, look, look, look what he says here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of the glory that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Look at this. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul says you want to be passionate about Jesus. You want to make sure that you finish well. You do not need a better preacher. We do not need more programs. We do not need more cultural impact. We do not need any of these. We don't need more signs, more miracles. He says, do you want strength? Do you want nourishment? Do you want life? Here is the key. Root yourself in the love that Jesus has for you. And remember that his love is deeper, it is wider, it is higher than anything we can imagine. He says, remain in the love of Christ. Jesus himself said this in John 15. He said, abide in me, abide in my love, because apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you tired this morning? Are you anxious? disenchanted with Christianity, maybe on the verge of spiritual burnout. You do not have to work harder just to love God. You need to learn to sit in the love of God. That is the key. And listen, please, real quick. You don't even have to conjure up feelings for God. You don't even have to feel like you love God. You just need to feel like God loves you. You need to know that that is true. You don't need to focus on your feelings as much as you need to focus on God's feelings for you. Right? We're not talking about trying to muster this stuff within ourselves. I mean, this is the great task of the Christian life, guys. I hope you hear this. Like, this is ground zero right here. The Christian life is not about you first trying to conjure up love for Jesus. But rather, it's remembering the love Jesus has for you and then responding to that love. The question this morning is, how do we do that? How do we abide in the love of God? How do we remain on a practical level? Okay, how do we bring it down? All this stuff we've been saying, how do we bring it down into the practical, everyday stuff of life? How do we remain passionate about Jesus? Well, listen, unfortunately for some of you, because this is what you want to hear, there is not like a three-step process. 
And if there was, like somebody would have made a million dollars off of it a long time ago. If you want to remain passionate about Jesus, here's the way on a practical level you have to do that. Listen, you have to slow down. And you have to begin to spend time with Jesus, unrushed time with Jesus in the scriptures and in prayer. This is a non-negotiable. In Ephesians chapter 5, I wish we had time to, to look at it. There's, there's, there's three things that Jesus says he wants to do to each of you right now. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to cherish you. And he wants to nourish you. Some of you, you can't sit still long enough. I mean, even in a sermon, right? We're moving, we're talking. It's just so hard, right? You can't sit still. You can't be quiet before the Lord. And therefore, because you're constantly moving, constantly fidgeting, right? You're, you're kind of like that, that, that six-month-old baby. My wife and I is about to have another baby in December. And the hardest stage, parents, you know this is what? Whenever the babies begin to get mobile and you're like trying to clean them and like they won't sit still, or you're trying to feed them, and they're like they're knocking the spoon out of your hand. Like they're getting impatient because they're in a high chair. And so because of that, right, and there's all sorts of struggle, that's a picture of what some of you are doing right now before God. And as a result, because you won't sit still right now as you sit here, you feel undernourished, you feel unclean and unloved. And you wonder, why in the world is there no passion? Some of you in here, you're too busy. Some of you in here, you say, well, Jared, you're a pastor. Of course, you can spend time with God. But me, Jared, I'm important. I've got things to do. Listen, I can promise you, you are not more important than Jesus. And Jesus himself found time to get alone with God and just marinate in the love of God for him. I promise you guys, if you do not, if you do not learn to be still, life will beat you down. And it's going to rob your joy. We have to learn to be still. The rumors of God's love for some of you is still nothing more than rumors. How do you move from rumor to reality? You learn to sit with God. To let Jesus marinate in the love that he has for you. What does this look like for me on a practical level? Just to maybe help you out, it's going to look different for everyone. I don't actually have to be into the office until 8 a.m. But for me, I get up or I go to sleep at 10.15, no later than 10.15, so that I can get up at 5.15 at the latest. And when I get up, what I do is I go and I, I get my steel-cut oatmeal from Aldi. And I throw some peanut butter in it, make me some peanut butter oatmeal, make me some coffee. I eat that. And then what I do is for about five to seven minutes, I literally just sit there in silence and I don't say anything to God. I don't even try to ask anything from God. I just sit there in His presence. That's one of the biggest problems we have in our relationship with God. Think about a relationship. If I was always going to my wife to get something from her, like how good is that going to be? Right? Like God wants us to learn to sit in his presence. So I just sit there. I don't say anything. I don't ask anything of him. And then after that, I open up the word. I'm going through a Bible reading plan right now. I read about a couple chapters in the morning. I read those. I get a highlighter and a pen. I begin to mark up my Bible at the things that jump out at me. And then I go back and I just begin to pray over those things. And then throughout the day, I try to set reminders to remind me to just stop, commune with God. And then as I'm going throughout my day, I'm trying to learn how to practice the presence of God. I mean, even right now, think about this real quick. Are you aware of the presence of God in this room? Or are you just aware of the person next to you and the guy talking? 
You see how hard that is? I'm trying to learn how to be in two places at once, to be aware of the presence of God and to be aware of whatever it is that I'm doing and whatever is before me. And listen, this all takes work. Maybe for some of you, you've tried this and you're like, man, but my heart still feels cold. Okay, listen, set at the fire of the gospel until it warms your heart. Don't pull away. Continue to press in. Don't grow weary. Keep at it. In Lamentations chapter 3, it says, verse 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait what? Quietly for the salvation of the Lord. If you want to see the rumors of God's love go from rumor to reality, this is your primary task today. I don't know how to be any more clear. This is your primary task, to wait patiently for the Lord, to slow down, to learn to remain in His love, and then as a result to respond in that love by doing whatever it is He's called you to do. Some of you here today, you're serving, you're giving, you're doing great things, but you're doing it begrudgingly. And you know why? Because you cannot give what you do not have. Some of you today, you are pouring out of an empty cup. And again, be encouraged today. God is not asking you to do more, to try harder, to just push through. He's just asking you to remember who he is and what he's done for you in Christ. To then repent of chasing after whatever things you've been convinced is better than him. And then out of an overflow of the love he has for you doing the good works that he's called you to do. This is important stuff, guys. It, there's literally nothing else more important than this. Really, there's, I cannot think of a sermon more important for this church than this right here. It's so important that Jesus even wants to get our attention and will end here. In verse 5, he says again, Remember from therefore where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, what, what Jesus? If what, what are you going to do? If not, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Like, what in the world does that mean? That means you're going to spend your life doing a bunch of really religious stuff, trying to impress a bunch of people who don't even matter in the end, and God's not going to be in any of it. He literally will remove his presence from your life, from the church. And that's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation. I think it's just God saying, literally, you're just going to be doing a bunch of empty religious stuff that I'm going to be completely removed from. You're never going to feel my presence and my power while you're here on this earth. That's the result. That's what he's going to do, he says. Fortunately, though, he ends... With a great promise, he doesn't just kind of end on the negative note. He says in verse 7, For he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat, grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If you are in Christ this morning, know this, you are more than a conqueror. Do you know what that means? Think about this. with me. This is reality. This is reality. Lord, help us believe it. One day... You're going to draw your last breath here on earth. And if you're in Christ, you're going to wake up in a place completely free from the presence of sin. In a place where there's no death, where there's no destruction, where there's no disease, where there's no divorce. You're going to eat. You're going to drink. You're going to be merry. You're going to celebrate. You're just going to, over, you're just going to experience the overflow of God's perfections for all eternity. That's reality. And here's what's so amazing that's something that all of us can have, not because we've earned it or deserve it, but simply because of the grace of God. Because God, through Christ, poured out his love for us so that we can experience this wonderful gift. If we lose Jesus, 
and the love he has for us, church, I'm telling you, we lose absolutely everything. We lose everything. 